Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My pappy said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. Ah, yes, NASCAR puts out its competition briefing, some changes in qualifying and several other nuances we discuss. We also look back at the life of Ryan Pemberton and ahead to some other news stories as we gear up for the 2024 season right here on Five to Go. They arrested me and they put me in jail and they called my pappy to throw my bail. He said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a Friday. We'll get back to our early to midweek renderings of the five to go racing podcast once the season gets going we're so thankful to have all of you joining right here on wsuradio.com and goprn.com welcome to the five to go racing podcast episode 247 and we're again so glad to have you join right here and what's been a rainy couple of days here in georgia but but the rain did not douse the birthday candles okay for our uh, super panel right here joining us Freshly turned 22 years old, our roving racing journo, our super fanalist who crunched the numbers, crunches the numbers for you, Devin Kupka. How was that birthday, brother? How you doing? It was good. It was a busy day. A lot of taking care of a lot of business at uh, North Georgia and a lot of announcements coming up too for things that I'm going to be doing in the next couple of weeks with the university. So it was a busy day and it was nice to relax when i got home and celebrate my birthday yesterday fantastic now we we made a lot of ballyhoo about your 21st birthday last year as often does what was the what was the big celebration like for the double deuce um just my grandparents came over yesterday and we just kind of just hung out pretty much here at my house so we did that and kind of took it as a time to relax a little bit because i was quite tired i went to bed pretty early last night the difference between 21 and 22, ladies and gentlemen, right there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Very cool, man. Well, happy birthday to you, buddy. And we're so grateful for you. And, you know, you've told us there, you're paying it forward, right? Just like you've had mentorship done to you. You were mentoring another young journalist trying to break into NASCAR on your birthday, nonetheless. So that, that's that's what it's all about right there. Props to you, Dev. And, of course, also joining us on the line by phone from that cool, damp garage there at Dawsonville. He makes your transmissions go fast, and he can maybe motor the mouth even faster. He and I have a contest with that there. The master maker of speed, Dan Elliott, how you doing? Doing good. Hope everyone is well and staying dry. I know that uh, warmer and more humid, but uh, just staying dry. Yeah, well, I'll take the warm, humid, and wet over the whatever that cold crap was we had recently there. But we're about to warm up into this NASCAR season here coming up. I, I like how the Rolex 24 is always right before the start of the year. Even though it's not stock cars, it's a race, and it's on the Daytona Speedway surface. 
And they'll be going for that this weekend. In fact, the top class in IMSA, uh, they they set a record in qualifying there. So it's going to be fun to drop in on that race. Of course, I'm not going to watch all 24 hours, and I don't have a lot of stakes in the game. It's kind of interesting, too, that there aren't any NASCAR drivers in the race. Now, in the Michelin Pilot Challenge race, we have Bubba Wallace and John Hunter Nemechek. And, and you know, a year ago, Harrison Burton and Haley Deegan ran in that. But this year, they, we don't have... You know, Pinsky shuttling some drivers up there, Chip Ganassi or whoever. That's kind of interesting, but there are a ton of IndyCar drivers, a lot of F1 team affiliations out there. Though there are not any current F1 drivers in the race, but it's going to be a big event to watch at Daytona. While the happenings were at Daytona, NASCAR competition gurus gathered the teams in the Charlotte area to release the competition bulletin. And that's going to be the main focus here on this show, just kind of breaking down what those changes are. Really, overall, to the to the eye, they're not going to be huge, huge changes for the NASCAR season. Even the changes we see with the underpinnings of the cars and the short tracks, it's not going to really change the eye test, so to speak. But we do have a change starting with the qualifying there. We're going to go over qualifying changes and some other changes through the uh, the second two series too. Basically qualifying, you had group A practice, group B practice, and then they racked up and they had group A qualifying and group B qualifying. Then all the speeds were merged together. And that was your starting lineup for positions 11 through 40. Then the top 10 would go and run a second qualifying lap and they would be reshuffled based on those speeds. Well, for 2024, with the exception of the Daytona 500, and of course the Super Speedways qualified just one lap at a time, one car at a time. But for the other tracks, they're going to have Group A and B qualifying. But whether you're in Group A or Group B is determined by this really complicated formula that has to do with your fastest lap time, your and I guess that's in the previous race, the fastest lap time, your finishing position, owner's position, and all this stuff. And that's made into a formula that determines if you're in Group A or Group B. And then, and Devin will come to you first, and she did a deep dive on this stuff, Group A and Group B, are your speeds are not put just in straight order. There's actually a certain side of the row, basically, that you start on, and that's the difference, right, Devin? Yeah, so in qualifying in the past, what we saw, especially the past two seasons with the current qualifying that we do have, is you'd have Groups A and Groups B, but a lot of times you would have Either it'd be Group A or Group B, they would have an advantage over one of the one of the groups over each other, and it kind of cause a disparity. Like take for instance in Richmond, I believe it was always if you were in Group B, you had a better chance at uh, qualifying towards the pole, and your speeds were a lot faster than Group A. And then if you were last to go out on the track during the final round, you had a higher chance to win the poll out of any other out of the 10 drivers that were left. So what they've changed now is where we're now where one group isn't really at a disadvantage is that they're changing the procedure where group a, when in that initial round, it, when you qualify, that'll qualify you for the inside row of the start of the race. And then group B outside will qualify row. you for the outside. Uh, so it's flip flop. A, a is going to be the outside of B, the inside per. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was one one way or the other, but and that's for uh, positions eleven through forty. The top ten will still race a second time and take a second lap, and you know whatever advantage or disadvantage there doesn't matter. You're going a second time. 
But what is preventing there is also when track conditions change, whether it's there's more rubber on the track and that benefits Group B, or whether there's a cloud on the track during Group A, but by the time Group B comes out, the track heats up. So you don't have an entire group of drivers at a disadvantage. You at least you know, have them kind of staggered out. So the, the fastest in Group B will be able to start 11th. The fastest in Group A will be able to start 12th on the outside of row number six. And, and, and the, the fastest that's not in the top five that, that advances to the final round, that is. So uh, that that's, yeah, I, I like that you wrote that down, Devin. And, you know, I, I don't know that fans were clamoring for this, Dev, but certainly the teams seem to make a stink about constantly you know, being clumped into a certain group, which I think those were random draws, those groups, and and constantly being a disadvantage. Yeah, I think this is a good move overall that NASCAR is making because, as we said, the a lot of that was based off of where you'd get placed in a group is off of your speed. It's kind of similar to the metric qualifying they had during the pandemic, except they kind yes. of apply it. They apply it to. Uh, quali- practice and qualifying they apply it to there and that's where that'll determine what group you're in is based off of the previous races results I like I like this change uh, because as we mentioned earlier one group sometimes typically has a greater advantage than another group when they go yeah. out so I like this change overall it, it shuffles it a little bit at least so you don't have say all of group B starting behind, you know, the, the most of group A, right? That, that's yeah, because of the change in position. Yeah. Now here's what's something that's it's interesting to me uh, is that the metrics, it doesn't say in the rundown that I'm reading from NASCAR.com, it doesn't say like, is like what gets you into group A or group B based on the metrics? Like, yeah, they're going to rank you based on, again, 15% of your fastest lap time in the last event, 25% of the driver's finishing position, 25% owner's position, and 35% owner's points. But does that mean that all the highest cars go into Group A and the lowest go into Group B, or is that also separated even odd? I think the only fair way to do that would be even odd. So if you have a driver metric of first quickest or number one, that would be Group A. Two is Group B. Three, Group A, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, otherwise, you would end up with all of the good cars in Group A, right? Or for the most part. So uh, they they didn't specify that here, but I would imagine it's going to be an even even odd situation with the driver metrics too, and that's something we could follow up on and figure out for later on. Now, Dan, I know that all sounds confusing, but when you're a race team and you're looking for any advantage or disadvantage you could get, it, it certainly makes more sense to have it have not an entire group of cars have a whole advantage over the other when you're doing this. So, I mean, you you feel good about this rule change, or is it is it all just uh, nebulous to you? It's pretty much a nebulous to me. It it really doesn't really factor in to me that much as it would some of the more casual fans, I guess. Um, maybe so, but um, I was looking at the, the comparison of when we qualified. When you had two groups that qualified, uh, you qualified. Everyone tried to make the race the first day of qualifying, whether that be on Thursday, Friday. Then the second round would be on Friday, Saturday, and you usually divided it up 20 cars first day, 20 cars second day. And and you you really had a huge difference a lot of times in, in different days. And I can see what they're trying to do in bringing 
uh, fairness all the way across the field, and, and I understand what they're doing. Um, it may be a deal to where that you and I both know that qualifying, if you're vying for the pole and your car is that good for the most part uh, for either that event or the course of the year, you and I both know that that's, that's really, really important, but you'll be there based on the formula I think they're trying to do for this, you'd be there anyway. And, and uh, basically it's just trying to bring parity through the field. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, that's, it just, it removes advantages that teams can't control basically, or disadvantages teams can't control. Another thing that we're only going to see in qualifying and only in the cup series that, that could be beta tested and used in a race later on is how they tow the vehicles. Now, we saw, starting with the 2022 Daytona 500, when a next-gen Gen 7 car would spin out, it could beach itself in the grass, or the tires would be flat. That car is so flat on the ground that it takes a good long time to tow it, and then if you tow it the wrong way, it can mess the car up even more. It can drag the underbody, or it can mess up other components. They even have a tow uh, hitch basically built into the back of these cars so they can be strapped and and towed and um and of course the rule is here you know that if you if you're only getting a tow back to the pits if you get stranded that doesn't end your day if you have to get loaded up on a wrecker otherwise then that does but no, nonetheless next gen towing and i'll read uh directly out of the release here they've worked with teams and drivers to determine solutions to assist a vehicle stranded with flat tires and getting it back to pit road but only if it spins during qualifying or practice and the point is quote without destroying the underbody of the machine so they're going to have tow trucks here with a dolly that can tow it back to pit road as fast as 70 miles per hour, they say. But they're only going to make this available in qualifying and practice because it takes quite a while to do this. And that might extend a caution period during a race too long. Now, these practice and qualifying sessions, Dan, are so short that if you had a car spit out and it took you know five or ten minutes to tow it back, that would be like the whole session. So I don't know. I don't know what the attempt is here, but Dan, it's a good to see at least that now that we're entering year three, they're finally figured out to tow these things. You'd think they could maybe do it a little faster, huh? I think that the ideal situation would be much like the other series that we've seen. And, and you saw it with legends cars at Gresham that you have the hook that goes through the, the system that goes through the bars of the car inside the car and hooks on each side on the outside. And, you actually have a sling that you pick them up and you suspend them and you you take them to wherever you need to take them. And to me, that is the quickest. I think these things need to have the ability to have a hook that is on the roof side of the car that's easily accessible through a panel, through an opening, whatever, that you can pick these cars up and it's at a, at a point you're at a point now to where the balance of these cars is pretty much the same throughout every car in the field. So I think that would be more adaptable. And I think beyond that, that you're going to see, uh, you're going to see racetracks. Uh, they're going to add more asphalt to where that you're going to try to eliminate the possibilities of these things getting in the garage, wherever they might end up when they spin out, What whatever the, the frequency is of areas that cars get into that, I think you're going to see pavement more so over the course of the next few years over all of the surfaces 
on the interior of the yeah. race track what the race car might end up being. I hate to lose green space, but certainly it seems like grass, as, as the effects of these cars have gotten lower and lower, where literally just driving through the grass can wreck a car. And then you see what happened to, say, Ryan Priest at Daytona or many others where you hit the grass at the wrong angle, wrong speed, wrong trajectory, and then you tumble a lot. It seems like it's only a matter of time that that grass, at least the real grass, gets taken away. Uh, speaking of, that that seeks right into the next one here. Deb will let you comment on this. Um, based upon what what is already what happened with Ryan Priest at Daytona last August where he had just that violent tumble crash it's flipped about 12 times or so uh nascar's already removed a portion of the grass and put pavement along the back straight away and then they're going to finish the rest of that stretch along the back stretch and have it paved up until the middle of two th- uh, turn three they're going to do that after the daytona 500 uh devin you think this is the right move getting less grass at the racetracks there um yeah i i mean there's less there's less chance of I guess you could say clipping is, and that's what really yeah. happened in that priest wreck is it, it clipped into the grass. You look at the busher wreck from the 602 years ago, that was clipping into the turf well, clipped into a yeah. drainage area, but still there was clipping on there. I feel like there's less chance of it. If it is pavement. Now the, the only thing, the only problem with doing the pavement is that you, there's a higher chance that you could hit the wall at a very very high rate of speed that's the only i would say disadvantage of having the pavement there but otherwise i mean i mean they kind of had to do that after after how bad that priest wreck was they kind of had to pave pave over that grass hey dan i've got a question about pavement versus grass when a car hits the pavement even if it's out of control i feel like there's and i could be totally wrong so please help me out I feel like there's more of a chance for the the tires and the brakes to work when you're sliding on pavement. When you hit the grass, I've heard other drivers say that the car could speed up just because it's all slick, if, depending, you know, of course, depending if it rained or not. Um, so when, Dev, when Devin's saying, you know, the grass could slow the car down, I mean, help me out. Am I wrong about that, or does the grass have to be wet to actually be an accelerant there? Usually, whenever there's dampness on the grass, it, it it has the image it looks like it's speeding up even though it probably isn't but what you get into is there's more safety in the asphalt it's smoother you have less of an ability for the car to these cars are so dependent on ground effects that once you get into a surface like grass like gravel whatever it is that you lose any maneuverability you lose all ability for any control whatsoever, and then the possibility of it going uh, or getting airborne as you hit these areas that aren't super smooth. Yeah, and I think super smooth is the key right there, too, and especially just with the speeds they're carrying and, as you said, with the ground effects that the drivers are feeling I think every little rumble and and hit. And that brings us to the next one then, too. Um, They're removing rumble strips both off of the Daytona road course um, after the Rolex 24. They're they're removing the big curbing, so to speak, based upon what drivers, uh, what what these uh, uh, mouth guards that gave data show they had spikes when they were hitting curbs, basically. And so at Watkins Glen and at Daytona, 
They are, and I'm just going to read directly here, curb hopping triggered notable spikes and forces the drivers underwent each time they raced through the inner loop. So like in Daytona, these curbs in Watkins Glen will be removed and replaced with contact pads. Different temporary strips, whether flat, an inch tall or otherwise, will be tested during a Goodyear tire test at Watkins Glen in June 26th and 27th. The recessed rumble strips will also be implemented in the runoff section of Turn 1 in an effort to limit the driver's use of the extra pavement. So it looks like they're softening the curbs and replacing it with something else that is less of a deterrent, uh, so to speak, for drivers to hop over them because of the spikes they went through. But they're adding the same recessed rumble strips in a different runoff area to keep drivers from swinging out so wide. Uh, I know that's a lot to process, and we're not road course racers here, but it, se- it seems like, uh, Devin, as these cars pick up speeds that they drive so well on road courses, the bumps really throw them for a loop there, and they're trying to prevent them from from going outside of track limits, I guess, which is probably a good thing in turn one. So this is the one that it, that confuses me the most. So, like, isn't it just kind of a curb right now at Watkins Glen? And this is just turn one, right? Well, there it's in the bus stop too, the the okay. bus stop, which is a different section of the track. Or sorry, not the bus stop, the inner loop, um, is where the curb hopping gave the big spike. So they're doing two things here. They're trying to make so when they hit certain curbs, they're not putting so much pressure on the bodies of the drivers. Additionally, where they have a big runoff section, they're putting some smaller rumble strips to keep drivers from using t- too much of the runoff section as part of the actual racetrack. Okay, so they're replacing those curbs with rumble strips now, is what I'm getting. They, yeah, basically, yeah. Okay. But they're I, kinda, ma- I think they're making the rumble strips big enough to not, to, to make it so you wouldn't just run over them on purpose. Yeah. You know, and, I, and go over the track limit. So that, you know, it's a, it's a fine line here because as we saw, Dan, at the first Indy Road Course race, you know, they they had some things to try to create track limits without having to enforce a penalty like they do in F1. But what those sausage curbs, Dan, were doing was launching the race car. So how do you balance? I mean, Dan, are you a fan of the whole track limits thing the Formula One does? And how, how do you keep drivers obeying the course without hurting them in the race cars too much? Well, you're you're... As we said about ground effects, the cars are so low to the ground, anything that upsets the cars, and I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to keep debris off of the racetrack because anytime you pull, anytime you as a driver run into an area where you might pull up dirt or gravel or something else onto the racetrack, then you run the real risk of puncturing a tire or having tire problems based on the debris and you've got to either stop the race or you've got to throw a caution and, and clean the track off. So I understand what they're trying to do. And I think they're trying to go about this in a manner to where that you're the least intrusive on the ability to, to utilize all of the corner, but to keep you out of the dirt and the grass and, and, and anything that might pull up on the racetrack and, and cause problems. And and that's difficult to do. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really tough to find that balance. Again, you want you want the cars to you you want you don't want to have uh, penalties and black flags for using track limits, but you don't want to 
but you you know you don't want to just build walls right there and have people wreck and race cars or you don't want to have crazy curves that hurt the drivers and the cars too much so yeah i don't envy being a nascar spot what was crazy is at circuit of the americas and, and a couple of other tracks last year drivers were getting uh, in formula one were getting i mean just by going a little bit off track we're getting some pretty severe penalties to the point where it's like well what are we doing here when you're making severe judgment calls based off of an inch being off the course or just a foot being off the course? So uh, I would, I would rather risk damage to the race car, <laughs> you know, than, than to have little judgment calls made like that. But uh, that's a tough one. I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. All right. Now, Speaking of road courses, the road courses will still have the full wet weather treatment. That means wet weather tires available and the defogger, lights, wiper blades, all that kind of stuff. Um, but and and they will also still have most of those effects at the tracks one mile or less, except for Dover and Bristol, in, ca in case they do need to race in the rain. Um, the lights, the wiper blades, and the rear flaps will not be required on the ovals. They'll only be required on the road courses. Uh, Devin, I mean, we saw them race at North Wilkesboro last year, at least in the heat races with the wet weather tires. We also saw in the truck series race in Martinsville, Corey Heim won that a race of the wet weather tires are, I mean, you're glad this is going on, right? I mean, we don't want to take a step back. Do, do you think, do you think they're making the right move here? I don't know. I feel like what if the situation arises then, I mean, well, it does it really make that big of a difference? And it's just the, it, 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 does it really make that big of a difference in just requiring it? Because it's already required on the road courses. I mean, I've gone to Roval the past couple of years and I've seen all the wet weather stuff on the cars and it's a clear sunny day out. I, maybe it, maybe there's a possibility that does make a little bit of a difference on a, on a short track or on the ovals. Maybe something with aerodynamics or something. But Yeah, I think, I, I think they're making it so it's not, required on those so people aren't just running it for no reason you know i think that okay yeah I, I think that i think there's something with the arrow they they also probably don't foresee a situation where if it's bad enough on an oval that you need a windshield wiper and the mud flaps they're probably not going to be able to race in the rain anyway the road course you have slower speeds more of the time so you could use those as mitigators to allow the racing to still happen i think i think the thought was that the oval there was not going to be an op uh, a chance that they needed to use that stuff very much okay you know they would just have a they would just have a red flag for rain but if the track is just damp they could still run the treaded tires you know so i, I think I, dan i got to say i i know in the mid 90s dan they tested a wet weather tire at Martinsville. And then and then they waited, you know, 20 plus years and tried to, to test it again. And and now we finally gotten there. Did you think in the 1980s there would ever be a scenario where NASCAR was racing in the rain? Was that even talked about much back then? Did people even consider that 40 years ago? No, there were too many obstacles to overcome because number one, the the car was you were basically running a sifter because the car wasn't sealed up in any of the areas, uh, not the floor pan, not the doors, not the windshield. Yes, it had this stuff in it, but it was not sealed up to where that rain could not enter. And then the bigger problem was you took air to the engine at the base of the windshield and it had a big opening. So any water that hit the windshield would usually go through the motor. So that was not a good thing either. It, it was the evolution of time 
as the car progressed, and, and we can see that evolution. And the problem that's run into today, I feel, is the fact that you have varying levels of dampness. You can you can start with a damp racetrack. You can have a wet racetrack. You can have a deluged racetrack. And yeah. you're trying to make one size fit all in this, and that doesn't work either. Well, right. And you could have closer to a deluge and run at a road course versus, you know, Martinsville. That would just yeah, really not work, probably. So. Deluge as well and, and, and injure a driver or um, be a possibility where that you could wreck a lot of cars in the field and, and it be one of those deals where you're trying. As you said about the ovals, you have more opportunities at an oval to run an event lighter because of light, lighter because you have opportunity for the weather to dissipate a little bit. We're on a road course without lights, and, and that may be what they have to come to on the road courses. You may be like the other series where you run headlights and you run day or night. If, it, if you run into darkness, you run anyway. It, the track yeah. will be dry, but you'll still run anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see what happens there. I, I would love to see them once or twice run again with uh, the treaded tires on an oval. That would be awesome. In fact, the lack of grip those cars have just with having the treads, whether the track is wet or not, makes it more entertaining, and you have to manage your tires and the whole bit. Um, let's get to another Doug, one here. On the go ahead, Dan. Doug, you also you also have to understand that with a treaded tire, it's usually a softer compound and. If you get into a situation where there's not a lot of moisture or the track starts drying yeah. up, you can't run these tires for a long period of time. You'll be stuck in the wall with a tire that is worn all the way through. So you got to be careful. Either way you do this, this is, this is going to be an evolution as well. Well, right. And look, I mean, we saw this at the Roval in 2020, the the year where it was a deluge in the Xfinity race. It rained most of the morning of the cup race and it started drying out. They started the cup race under damp conditions and it was a race to the pits very early. How long, you know, how, how fast can we get to the pits here and get some wet weather tires on uh, or some dry tires on because the track dried out pretty quickly. I love seeing the drivers manage that and manage tire wear. Frankly, that's what we've been begging for because <laughs> the tires have been so hard lately and sometimes doesn't create the best racing. Hey, on the Xfinity side, they're uh, further limiting the number of backup cars to go to the racetrack. Now, really, since covid NASCAR, with a co just the matter of cost, has had teams in all three series limit the number of backup cars. Well, now on the Xfinity side, and I guess the, to the Truck Series side, um, they're going to limit the backup cars they could have for each race even more. If you are a one or two team race organization, you only are allowed to have one backup car at the event, and it could be fully prepared. But it cannot have a full vinyl wrap on it because those cost a couple of thousand dollars. You can only put decals. So you have to register with NASCAR, basic color of the car. And then if you crash your primary that does have a vinyl wrap, you can just put decals on the backup. And that'll save them some money. Organizations with three or four race teams are allowed to have two backup cars. And only one of those may be fully prepared. And there's only one engine allowed between the two backup cars. So it's kind of like having one and a half, I guess, basically, right? Um, 
There will be two logistic scenarios that the backup restrictions are not going to be in place, and that's where the qualifying of the race are separated by two hours or less, or where there are back-to-back West Coast races where you have to shuttle several cars out West, and NASCAR will work with the teams as needed to work those out. Um, I know that's something that, again, the only time the fans are really going to see the difference here, Devin, is when you know, say who I'm trying to think, you know, Austin Hill crashes, you know, and, and, and has to go to a backup and he has a slightly different looking car than his normal Bennett logistics car or whichever, right? It's There's going to be very few times that the fans see the difference. And I, I feel like there's still an overall more of a benefit than a drawback here. What do you think about further limiting the costs on this uh, phase, Devin? I, I think this is interesting because now this is what kind of what the kind of cup series has kind of become in a way where since with this current generation cars that we don't have you don't have as many backups as you did back in the day where you used to have every team had a backup pretty much um now you really don't see that though maybe a whole four race team might have one or two backups at the track but i think this is interesting for a cost limiting standpoint that they're going to be doing this I think this is going to be something you see trickled down to the lower series, like the truck series as well. And that I think, I think it's a good move because it'll save some of the big teams, some money, I think, because now they're not going to be prepping as many backup cars as they, as they were. So it kind of puts them more on level with the lower teams that can't really afford to, furnish a couple backup cars for a weekend so i think that kind of levels it out from that standpoint where maybe damage on a lower end team is going to be a lot worse for them because now they have to go to their one backup car that maybe they didn't have as much time to prep now it's kind of more on an even basis because now you have all these cars that are going to be pretty much equal taking to the track because you can't prep as many now so i think this is it's an interesting move that they're making and i think a lot of things that they're testing the cup series are starting to trickle down to the lower series now the backup car situation with the cup series was parts issues two years ago but i feel like we really still haven't recovered in the in the in the point that every single car team like Stuart haas the 410 and 1441 have each have their own backup Whereas only that whole team might have two backups the whole entire weekend. Right, right. It, you know, or one and a half. It's like one engine between the two backups. That's kind of a, a strange thing there. Uh, another one, too, that goes in that same hopper is the Xfinity and Craftsman Truck Series teams will have a smaller fuel can this season. Um, that's going to go from 11 gallons to nine, 15 to 16 pound difference, Xfinity Series director Wayne Auten said. And so they in theory, would have less specialized athletes needed to fuel these vehicles, which could save, especially some of the smaller teams, the money of using a cup pit crew. Dan, I think you have, you, now you've been, a, you're the only one of us three that's been a crew member. You went over the wall and changed tires for many years on that famous number nine. You don't necessarily have the same opinion as the sport on this. I don't know if it's the same opinion. It's, I guess I kind of question it a little bit because, Let's let's face it. As as Devin said, you're dropping two gallons from eleven to nine, and you're right at seven pounds to the gallon. So a sixty-three plus the weight of the can, dry brake, and so forth, and you're still right at seventy seventy-five pounds above your weight that you're trying to get 
over to the car, plug in, um, you know, do the, whether you do the dance routine of, of backing up to let the tire guy get to, to the left rear, whatever your, whatever your routine is, it just, I, I don't, I don't guess I see where it matters that much. And I just wonder if this is a prelude and this is just my opinion, prelude to a smaller fuel cell because you're supposed to um, be able to fill the car with two cans. So two cans, uh, the fuel cells hold about 18 gallons. Now, I just wonder if you're, you're getting ready to go to a smaller cell. Could be some benefits from going to the smaller cell for sure. Um, yeah, that your, <clears throat> engines, your engines with with the horsepower they don't they don't use as much fuel. So I I can understand that the cans getting smaller would would be okay, and the fact that you don't burn as much fuel that uh, that you won't need as much in the cans. So I can see where that would be an advantage. I do and. And um, I, I think there's just a little bit more to it, and it's not a conspiracy theory, but I just think that it, it may be a prelude to a smaller cell in the future. But yeah. as far as trying to use a, a smaller person or a smaller frame person to do that, the the bigger you are, the the better you can do that job. It's it's kind of like carrying the tires and so forth, but. The tires have gotten so much lighter, but you still haven't changed any of the personnel. And, and that's where I guess I, I question it is the tires have gotten lighter and you've not changed any of your personnel that do the tire changing or the tire carrying. Yeah. I didn't realize the tires had gotten lighter. I thought, well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't realize. From a, you've got from a steel wheel to an aluminum wheel and the tires have gotten smaller in size and um it, it, it is a lighter i know that uh, when i went to atlanta i picked up one i'm gonna couldn't believe how light they were wow interesting interesting yeah well so here's a situation where and whereas in the cup series you tested the backup car restrictions and then implemented it lower here you're testing something in the smaller series will it go higher and of course in adjacent to this we need to know that at the bush clash coming up they are going to have a um a demo basically of an electric vehicle that was tested by none other than david reagan i believe at martinsville uh, fairly recently and it's going to be on a, a compact suv or crossover suv platform now this is nascar said this is not to replace any current series or anything like that. It's just to test something because manufacturers are all interested in EVs and they're even looking at other types of power, including hydrogen to uh, fuel a race car and see where it shows itself. Uh, I'm going to reach out to David and see if we can have him on one of our recent forthcoming shows here sometime before Daytona or Atlanta to talk about testing that car and where the sport's going. It was David that told me several years ago, look out for EV all the manufacturers want it and they will leave if they don't get it. And now maybe it's a little more nuanced than that, but that that's just a sidebar of something that that's being tested. And just to go along with this fuel thing here, if you're having less fuel cells, could you have hybrids? We don't know. Right. Uh, one thing that's going to, we're going back to the cup series. Now that's going to be tested in the cup series is teams are going to be permitted starting in Daytona to have led signage attached to their pit boxes 
42 inches tall and then as the width of the pit box and, and that's gonna they're gonna have dimmer switches to so the uh, display can be changed at different times as needed or as requested and this will be for sponsor activation most likely Devin what do you think about this LED signs attached to the pit boxes as another way for the teams to flex I think that's a pretty cool move that they're making because not every because when you look at pit boxes week to week and if you attend enough races sometimes that let's say let's take Eric Jones for instance let's say he has family dollar or let's say I think it's Advent Health is his primary sponsor this year so they'll get the primary sponsorship across pretty much their pit box but there might be some races where he's running a family dollar or a dollar sure. tree scheme right but they can't really fully update the pit box week to week just to match just that one sponsor for that week because most of their races are Advent Health. In this yeah. instance, with the LED stuff, and it, they said they're allowed them. I think I think in there they they were allowed a monitor or something maybe on their pit boxes. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll go up and check that. Well, if they allow a monitor, that means they can just have that image up there of the other sponsor that's not Advent Health that weekend. Exactly. Also, yeah, it's interchangeable. It's just a 42-inch tall sign that you could program in whatever you want. So, yeah, yeah you could. So, you could put any sponsor you want on there. You could put your associate sponsors on there as well. Yeah. So, I think that's See, something that could keep advertisers, make it more teams valuable. Teams already have the ability like, with magnetic I mean, you see with the pit walls and the vinyl banners, but yeah. also on the pit boxes themselves, sometimes like if, if Advent Health, which kind of has a blue, green, and white library, if I remember correctly, right? If Advent Health is, is sort of your base, you could still put magnets up to have family dollar or whatever it is, right? You could, they, they do that. So they do have some interchangeable things on the pit boxes. Dan, this is pretty innovative. I mean, LED signage that you could completely change to the library of the car or whatever you wanted to say besides sponsorship dan what else would you like to see a team put up there maybe some insults of a rival driver uh maybe you know hey mom i mean what what else could we do with this signage i don't know but i can see this going either very very well or very very wrong how does so, it go wrong it goes wrong by can you imagine all of these pits down pit road with LED. I, I was just thinking about the LEDs on tow trucks, police cars, fire trucks, how blinding that is going down the interstate. Yeah. But they, and, th there's going to be regulation on how bright it could be. Well, I'm sure there will be. There will have to be a book on the regulations of what you can and can't do, what, what can be on the signage, because I can, like I said, I, I can visualize this going really really good or really really bad and um i don't know I, i'm gonna i'm gonna have to jury's still out on that one i i really will have to see this to see what they're gonna do and yeah. uh, then will next be led on the cars and where where will you draw the line on this and and this is just thinking outside of the box here and I down the I was listening back. to the I was listening to the Money Lab podcast with Parker Kligerman and Landon Castle, and they brought up something that was allowed at a practice. I don't think it happened during the race. I could be wrong, but one of the the Ferrari team actually had an interchangeable LED sponsorship billboard on the side of the car, and which is even weirder to think at F one just because 
they don't have such big surface areas to do that, but they had a sign that was changing out on the car. I feel like the technology exists that you could have that on the car not, and, and not be bright, but I'm talking about a dynamic animated sponsorship thing that's that's only vinyl thick it is on the car but is led or some kind of you know holographic or something that you could have say on the side of ross chastain's car nice cold glass or can of bush pouring out you know kind of like brad keselowski's old miller scheme where it had the 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 miller beer like flowing on the side of the car you could have something like that man I, i think that'd be cool but I, but this is being debuted in the Cup Series because it is a sizable cost, and so they don't, they don't want that cost going down to the Xfinity of trucks just yet. Yeah, and I'd rather see them do something with sensors on the cars, where either that or the technology to where that, um, like a lot of these systems you can get for a car now that that you've got a screen and you can monitor cars around you or people around you, uh, and I'd much rather see that technology in the cars to where the driver can keep up with more things around him and like i said it's a sensor deal where it's more of a warning than it is maybe not a camera just just the ability to know that there's a car off of your right rear off the left rear um i I think that ability to do that exists now and would be very easy to do but I'm going to have to see what they do with the signage and what they allow and they don't. And uh, then I'll I'll tell you about that. Hey, there you go. Just a a fan (laughs) deal because, you know, back, back in our day, we could put the banners on pit wall and, and you could do the banners in a reflective. You could, you could do it in many things. And there really wasn't anything that was, uh, no rules, anything like that on it. You could just put the banners on the pit wall. And like I said, night races, it was reflective. And, and um, you're going to see some innovative people come up with some innovative ideas, I do feel. Yeah, I'd love to know who was behind that. And I, I feel like it's someone like Trackhouse who's going to be able to jump out. You know, they, they're always outside the box thinking of this stuff. You know, they're, they're going to make the best of that. Hey, a couple of other things here on this uh, competition briefing there. And, and also Devin's pulled some stuff that wasn't in this particular article, but is of interest. Stage breaks, they're going to be back at the road courses. We tried that the first part of the season last year. By the time we got to the Roval in the fall, they had brought them back. Uh, because the, even though they switch up the strategy quite a bit, drivers have to choose whether to get stage points or to pit before the stage break. And they, we also had, as the competition briefing mentions right here, Watkins Glen's race was only two hours, 10 minutes and had one caution. India road course only had one caution and that just <clears throat> didn't allow a- anybody a chance to catch up basically. So the stage breaks are back at the road courses. There are going to be muffler configurations for the Bushlight clash. That's coming up. And then the July 7th Chicago street course, they've been testing those, and that's to mitigate the sound of the car. The cars are extremely loud without the muffler. They are louder than the older generation race cars, actually. In the inspection line, there's going to be basically the same process, but a beefier, as is said by Cup Series director Brad Moran, beefier upgraded version of the underbody scanner. That's a place where we saw Brad Kozlowski a couple of years ago get in some big trouble. The underbody scanner is going to have more components to it, but otherwise very similar. And then finally, here we go, Dan. The NASCAR production facility in Concord is going to have a remote race control platform they're building out. 
where they can assist the people in the booth at the racetrack in calling the race, but also provide a training ground for future race control officials. And Dan, there's been a lot of talk in the industry about inconsistencies at really since the departure of David Hoots from the race director role and, and throwing cautions and making certain calls during the races and having a place to train new people and also assist in those calls. I, I would say that's more of a pro than a con, eh? Absolutely. And, and I think this production facility, I think you've just seen the tip of the iceberg on what is going to come out of that facility, because I feel like that, that NASCAR is going to show you, you, you think, you think you've, you've seen state of the art in a lot of things. I think they're going to show you a new state of the art. Uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, this is, this is definitely going to be it. I definitely want to go up there and see that place next time I get around to Charlotte. All right, Dev. And then you pulled some interesting information that came out of that briefing that wasn't in this particular article from Bob Pockers on Twitter that will be of interest, I believe, to uh, those that follow Xfinity and trucks. Yeah, they're bringing the competition pit stops back at the standalone races, which I think is a great idea to bring them back because we used to be able we used to do them and then they took them away after the pandemic and now they're back i think that'll add an interesting factor to some of the standalone races one of them that comes to mind is portland i think it'll make that one more interesting since we've never seen a live pit stop there so I, i really like this move and i think this is one of the moves out of that whole competition thing that stands out the most to me well yeah and i mean they eliminated the live pit stops of those races because the cut pit crews and the, you know, teams would be in different spots they had to fly pit crews in and all of that. But uh, so you see in one sense, reducing the size of the fuel can to limit the cost, reducing the backup cars to limit the cost. In this case, the cost is going to go up just a little bit, but yeah, I, I, having, a, this is the second biggest form. I'm sorry. Xfinity series is bigger than IndyCar. Okay. It's the second biggest form of racing in the United States and having, like this weird break just to change tires and stuff kind of seems strange to me. It was certainly strange to watch on TV. Now, I just wish they would require all the broadcasters to be at the track in person because that Portland Xfinity race was unbearable to watch with the, I believe it was the NBC crew. Yeah, it was NBC remote from the track and just having like one or it two pit Fox. reporters. It was Fox. Well, whatever. It was garbage. It was, or maybe it wasn't that right. There was some, there was one of the, I thought it was Portland. There was one where they were, or no, maybe it was, uh, was it road? Did Xfinity go to road? I'm not sure if NBC was fully in person at road America because they never ever cut. It was road America. That's what it was. Road America. Cause cup didn't go to road America. It was road America. Yeah. And they had like Dave Burns or someone in the, I don't know. I just, whatever. I, I I don't want to start naming names and stuff. It was bad. It was bad to watch. <laughs> That's what I'll just say. It was bad to watch. So par- pardon me, I had the, the tracker on there. It was NBC and it was Road America. What the heck? Call a race. Get to the track. Um, there are several truck races where they didn't have their broadcast crew there. I'm like, come on, guys. I mean, you know, what are we doing? Okay. Um, now, outside of all these competition briefings and all of that, and look, a lot of that's in the weeds. In the end, you turn on a race, you see him go door to door. That's what you want to watch. A couple of other things, though. A Legacy Motor Club keeps making headlines this offseason. What are they? The new track house? Come on. Uh, but they <clears throat> have announced Corey Heim, 
Georgia driver, Marietta, Georgia. Corey Hine as their reserve driver, and 2311 he'll be the reserve driver for. So he'll be conditioning and doing sim work behind the scenes and in case one of their drivers gets hurt. It's a similar role that, say, Ryan Priest had with Stuart Haas racing back uh, uh, in 2022, right? And, and there after his time at JTG Darty Racing. And so that'll be good to see Corey Heim get an opportunity there. He only has a limited schedule in Xfinity this year with Sam Hunt Racing. He's not part of the Gibbs cadre that we know of. And of course, he'll run full-time for Tricon Garage in the truck series. And then also, Legacy Motor Club is bringing on Trevor Bain. Trevor Bain had run some select Xfinity races for Joe Gibbs Racing the last couple of years in the Toyota Banner. Legacy MC is going to have Trevor Bain as their driver competition conditioning coach. And of course, he's in great shape, being the 2011 Daytona 500 winner, raced several years full-time in the Cup Series. And he is going to be over there helping their drivers, Eric Jones and John Hunter Nemechek, get whipped into shape. And he has experience working with Nemechek under that Gibbs banner there. Uh, good to see uh, Haim and Bain, Devin, get uh, allowed under the legacy banner there. And maybe Haim is beefing up his credentials for a Cup Series run soon. Yeah, I think this is a good move for both LMC and Corey Heim because now it'll give Corey Heim some cup experience since he's been in the bank, really kept in the truck series the past couple of years. So I think this is going to be a really good opportunity for him to learn the current cup car. And then whenever he's ready for the cup series, in case they in case they need Corey Heim this year, he'll have some, well, at least some or limited experience in the cup series car. So when he, whenever he does make that full-time jump to the cup series, that it's not such a sudden change in a way where this car is drastically different from the other cars. Well, right, for sure. It definitely helps. And, I mean, his input goes into making those cars faster, and that's got to make uh, somebody of his stature – you know, be, uh, be have a little bit of pride, right? And we, uh, Carson Hosevar, Zane Smith, uh, a few other drivers, these young drivers have gotten opportunities that we don't really know about till after the fact to be a part of the background noise there, but to be um, beneficial to these cup teams. And we even saw an Alex Bowman's gap year, basically, when between when he lost his cup ride and then got the full-time opportunity with Hendrick Motorsports, he was full-time behind the scenes, you know, simulators and, and testing and all that kind of stuff. Dan, I mean, the game has changed. Opportunities exist for these young drivers to get ready before they ever stick a foot in one of those cup cars for real. Yeah, absolutely. And and glad to see some of the Georgia drivers that uh, have have worked so hard get an opportunity. And, and that's, that's the only thing that you can ask for is an opportunity because a lot of the drivers come through and don't get that opportunity. So, yeah, and, and this is uh, going to give them a chance to, to uh, show their abilities and what level they can achieve and uh, proud to see it for sure. Well, for sure. Yeah. Well, we're, we're glad to see that with them. And then the last thing I have to uh, bullet point here, and I mean, we shouldn't underscore this too badly at all, um, but last bullet point here, um, really, it's really sad news that I, we meant to mention on last week's show, and I don't believe we did, but Ryan Pemberton, Cup Series winning crew chief, a longtime fixture in the NASCAR garage, passed away very suddenly on the Sunday before last, January 14th, at a fairly young age, too. Ryan Pemberton <clears throat> had experience in the Cup Series, you know, running running around with his brother Robin, who works for NASCAR now. Uh, Ryan was on Mark Martin's number six Cup team. He was then went over to the Davey Allison team, and they're real legendary 
1992 season where Davey won a bunch of races and almost won the championship. He was part of Kyle Petty's team the year after that and won a race over there. And and then in more recent years, he was in the competition side at Junior Motorsports and helped build them into a big old team that's that's won a bunch of races and championships in the Xfinity Series. Ryan Pemberton won two cup races. He won a cup race in 2004 with Joe Nemechek at Kansas, and he also won in 2009 with Brian Vickers' um, Cup Series win at Michigan Speedway, and so we'll miss him. And then also, uh, former Cup Series driver and Xfinity Series race winner Mike Wallace announced on Facebook this past week that his wife, Carla, had passed away from cancer. And so condolences to uh, Mike Mike Wallace and the Wallace family, too, there. But, uh, Dan, I'm sure that in your years at the Cup Garage, you got to rub shoulders some of Ryan Pemberton a little bit. Yeah, more familiar with Robin and and Ryan came in. He was a good bit younger than me, and um, I, I it's it sure when I found out about that, I sure was sad to hear that. Uh, but yeah, I got got opportunity to uh, spend time with him and his brother as well, and um, find people, and and it sure is going to be a loss to the racing community. It really is, yeah. So uh, just a big shock there. And I mean, I think he was still active in it too. I don't think he'd retire or anything like that. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I certainly talked to Mike Wallace several times before there, and he's been out of the sport for a while, been kind of in and out of some controversy, some different things too. But a tough break there, of course, for him, and a big loss in his family. Uh, the the Pemberton family too, you know. And I, I was listening to the Seam Ball podcast. Uh, by the way, for those that had subscribed to it in years past, they actually had to create a new Apple podcast for some reason. I'd stopped getting new episodes. I thought they'd just stop putting them on Apple, but they're still making them. And they had interviewed Ryan Pemberton literally right before he died. And the week that it was going to come out is when he passed. And so they did a really great job of honoring him. And I, I learned a good bit about it. But one thing they mentioned is uh, Ryan's brother, Randy Pemberton. There were four Pemberton brothers um, and Robin's been, you know, or, uh, Roman rather has been up on the spotter stand before and things like that. But, um, excuse me, uh, uh Ryan Pemberton had a great interview on the scene ball podcast, but, uh, Randy Pemberton was a long time TV reporter in the garage there and, and was on a lot of the speed broadcasts and, and different iterations of the broadcast over the years. And he died several years ago. So that family's really been through it. Um, I also saw something interesting too in the athletic this week, they d- did a feature about, uh, short track and how to fix the package and basically how nobody knows how to fix it is, you know, <laughs> this is what the bottom line is. NASCAR's even admitted there's, you know, they don't have an answer to the problem just yet. And one of the people quoted in Jeff Gluck's athletic article was Richard Johns and a light bulb went off for me. Light bulb went off for me. Richard Johns. I was like, wait a second. Hashtag GA drivers. Am I right? It's the same Richard Johns. And I just did an image search to make sure it's the same Richard Johns that raced about 10 or 15 Xfinity races in 2007 for the Rincey brothers. He now works for Ford tech performance behind the scenes. They're making their cars go fast. So that's a name, a blaster of the past that I hadn't heard in 15 years. Richard Johns, the former driver working behind the scenes as an engineer. That's kind of cool. So I'll put that down as my final thought ahead of this. Uh, Devin, let me pitch the pigskin to you. We've covered a bunch of rules, done some news, done some condolences here. Any final thoughts from you? At 22 years and one day old, sir. 
Well, I'm looking, my final thought today would be is I'm looking forward to Tuesday as I'm going to be going down with the defending Division II national softball national champions, the UNG softball team. We're going to be going down to the Georgia State Capitol on Tuesday. So I'm looking forward to that. That's fantastic. Yeah, you're going to get to go down. Now, Dan and I have each had experience at the Capitol before, so we're going to relive your experience next week and then talk about ours as well because we've gotten to do some unique things. Um, and then uh, I, Devin's probably never heard of this band, but I just see a headline here from Jayski. Matchbox 20 is set to rock out a pre-race concert. I know the who they are. 600. You do? Oh, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. It's it's a real world after all. All right. Uh, Dan, any final thoughts from you, my friend? No, just looking forward to getting the season underway because we've seen so much information, so much. I, it's hard to, to really get in and digest everything that's come through in all the different sources. And um, just looking forward to the season and getting settled in, get that first race in, get settled in, and um, and enjoy the season. Hey, I've got, uh, I've got one final thing. I just got this in my inbox. The Atlanta Motor Speedway Xfinity Race got a title sponsor. It's the Focused Health 250, and it'll also be at Circuit of the Americas as well. All just right, Focused Health. Sprinkle that in it's there. Good. A healthy weekend and better health 400. Mm-hmm. Focus Health. I believe it's February 7th. I'm going to get to do, um, they're going to have an event with Chase Elliott. And I don't know the details yet, but an event with Chase Elliott at the World of Coke. And I'm going to get to do the Q&A with Dan's nephew there. Once again, I got to do that with him two years ago at the College Football Hall of Fame. So circle February 7th. Maybe we'll get a little Chase Elliott audio for the podcast ahead of the Ann Better Hell 400, ahead of the Daytona 500, too. That's before the 500. Hey, another uh, couple of things for the NNPA, National Motorsports Press Association, I should mention, too. Deb Williams, longtime media fixture. Not somebody that I know well, but she was the first woman to right on the uh, international wire basically for NASCAR she put it she's put into the NMPA Hall of Fame and the late Steve Richards who was a longtime fixture on the PRN broadcast performance racing network on Pit Road he was given the Barney Hall reward oh, award at their recent ceremony just ahead of the NASCAR Hall of Fame inductions last week. So cheers to Steve. Steve is the uh, is somebody that I got to know well over the years and somebody that he's actually who I filled in for my very first race on PRN. And we lost him two years ago to the coronavirus there. So cheers to Steve and that posthumous award. Well, Dan, Devin, thank you so much for joining everybody. Be sure to like our Facebook page. I put up a, a, a Facebook message on there. And uh, I mean, Dan and I both can attest, we have NASCAR gear that is older than Devin. Some of it I've inherited from other people that had it in the nineties, but I've got a few die cast race cars that I bought in 2001 when I first started liking NASCAR that are older than young Devin Kupka, but be sure to get on our Facebook page and drop in something you have that is older than 2002 when Devin was born that you have NASCAR wise, whether it's a program or a t-shirt or a die cast or whatever, and be sure to wish him happy birthday on there. And Devin and I, you can find us on the major social media platforms too. For Dan and Devin, I'm Doug. We'll be back with you next week, breaking down the Bush Clash here on the Five to Go Racing Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.